and taking care of the audio video magic stuff because, man, I realized this week at looking at technology that something happened when I turned 40 um, this past year, and I'm like afraid to even look at that stuff now. It is not, it's not in a language that I understand, and that's, man, that makes me feel old. But anyway, I'm glad there are people that aren't old and that can take care of that stuff. Uh, good to see everybody back. I guessed that we would have like 20 to 25 people, and I think we're at like 23, so that's, that's good. And uh, so I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you guys that are tuning in live and kind of hung with us while we didn't have any audio, but now we do. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so yeah, we're back uh, to a degree. Like if you have been uneasy about uh, re-entering society, we understand. That's okay. Um, we're glad that you're here today. If you're at home, uh, understand that it's okay that you're there too. We're fine with that. Um, like we talked about last week, this is not, like a lot of the questions that are swirling around, these are not moral issues. These are not doctrinal issues. Uh, they're, they're separate then, and so they're okay. Whichever side of the fence, or if there is a fence to you, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, uh, we're okay um, with that. So we're glad that you guys are here today and are, are tuning in. So we're going to pick back up in our First Peter series. Um, we took a week off, and so the week before that, Stephen talked to us about just this idea of being set apart you know, that uh, this letter is being written to a group of scattered believers. Uh, they weren't necessarily scattered for political reasons. They were just scattered by nature of life. They were living in modern-day Turkey. Um, and Peter starts out with just a couple really simple ideas. The first thing he starts out doing is just encouraging these believers because most of them were new believers. They were not around like a central church yet. Um, and so they were just kind of believers like in the Wild West, so to speak. And so he's writing this circular letter to all of these believers, and he encourages them first with just some doctrinal issues. And then he moves on to that, and he says, uh, I want to encourage you, but I also want to tell you, let's be prepared, you know, because things are coming. And even though you're not like under this huge political pressure right now that would come for the church. It wasn't there yet. He's like, but we need to be prepared. Just as believers, there are going to be difficulties that we're going to encounter as a result of Jesus being in our life. He suffered. We're going to suffer. It's going to be there. So he just told them, let's be prepared. And then like Stephen talked to us about two weeks ago, um, just this idea that if we have been called out, like we made this statement that God has called us out of our past, placed us in our present to prepare us for a future. If that's the case, uh, then we need to accept and understand that we're set apart. We're called to be different. Jesus didn't come and uh, be born the way that he was born in miraculous fashion, live a sinless life, teach with great wisdom that he should not have had, died a death that we could not die, and then kick death in the teeth and conquer it for us so that we could be the same. He didn't do that. He came so that we could be different, so that we could be set apart. Biblically, that word would be sanctified. And so Stephen did a great job talking about that um, just in the context of a couple areas. And just to kind of recap, to get us on the same page. Um, because I want to, let me go ahead and preface this. The passage that we're going to read today, uh, starting in, in chapter 3, the first seven verses, if we read it apart from the context of the rest of this book, we're going to be like, why in the world is this here? And to be honest, um, there's going to be a lot of tension. Uh, like, I was dreading teaching this to a degree. There's a couple passages in Scripture that, like, we need to teach, we need to understand, but at the same time, I feel the tension before I even utter the words, and this is one of these passages today. Um, but if we read it within the context of what's going on, this idea that we've been called to be set apart, we've been called to be different, uh, it will make a lot more sense. And so the areas in which we looked at last week where we were called to be set apart in the way that we view, like, governmental authority, we've been called to be different. And Stephen made a great point to, you know, to talk about the fact that, uh, yes, we're Americans, but primarily and first, we're citizens of the kingdom. Like, that is our primary citizenship. 
And being an American, no matter how patriotic you want to be, that's fine. It will never be more important than the fact that we have been called out. We are now aliens in this place because our citizenship is in heaven. And so, man, just Scripture echoes this several times. Paul talks about it. Peter's talking about it here. But it says that we are to be subject to the governing authorities because God has placed those in place, not saying that God is a Republican or a Democrat or that he loves one authority over the other. None of that stuff is there, but God did create government. It is his invention. Does it mean that it's perfect now? No, because he also made man, and we're screwed up because of sin, and so so is government, Um, and we can see that every day. And so, But he is saying, look, as good citizens of the kingdom, You also need to behave as good citizens of the place in which you live, as long as it does not interfere with the calling that God has placed on us. And then he even went a little bit further to say, look, and maybe you're a slave. Maybe you're a doulos, a bondservant. Um, No matter what your master is, you need to be a good slave. And that sounds crazy. Uh, The context of slavery in the New Testament, to be honest, it was different from our, our Americanized version of slavery, which is terrible. We've been confronted with that over the past several weeks not saying that this slavery wasn't bad, but it, it, it's not the same. But there were bad masters back then. And he said, good master, bad master, you're to do your best and be different, be set apart. And then today, man, today, I know as soon as I start this passage um, that there will be closed fists, okay? So what I want us to do is this. I want us to pray, all right? And I want to ask you to do this. Um, and, and men, you're not going to have the closed fists, to be honest. Women, wives, you're going to have the closed fist. That's going to be the tendency, and I get it. I'm not a woman. I have a wife. I love her dearly. We talked through this passage extensively this week um, on our car ride back from Kentucky, and I wanted to hear her thoughts and hear her understanding because she's got great wisdom, and I wanted, to, I wanted that. Um, but I want to ask us to do this. Let's listen for the reason, okay? Let's, let's listen objectively. Hang on Because most of the objections that we will have in the beginning, they will be put to rest by the end. Okay, just seven verses. So let's let's pray for objectivity, let's pray for peace of heart, and then we'll jump in and we'll read. God, we love you. Uh, We thank you for the peace that comes through your spirit, the freedom that comes only through Jesus. And God, today we ask for both. Uh, God, as we're looking at reason, as we're looking at the why behind some difficult ideas, especially within Um, our self-driven culture. God, I pray that you would speak louder than any other voice. I pray that you would be the loudest voice in the room today um, and in our hearts. God, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for teaching us. And God, we thank you so much for Jesus and the gospel that sets us free. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So hang on, okay? Bear with me. Open hands and don't, don't throw anything. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3. Starts off with likewise. We'll come back to that. But it says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, lowercase l. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to hit chapter verse 7 in just a bit, but I, I want to tackle this first, okay? So, if you're a wife, if you're a female, I'm sure that you can hear why there can be tension there. 
okay? Um, if you weren't here last year during our marriage series, you can go back and listen to, we worked through Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 22 through 33, in which there's another equally tense passage um, that Peter is probably building on to a degree here, but the context is a little bit different. Uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, there is the assumption that both parties are believers, okay? There's the assumption that the wife and the husband are pursuing Jesus. And so at the end of that, the, the Cliff Notes version of that passage is that marriage should uh, sanctify the wife and the husband by asking them to do the two things that are hardest for them to do as a, nat- as a result of their sin nature, okay? Um, it's asking wives to submit to their husbands or to willingly allow their husbands to lead um, because they are trusting that their husbands are trusting God to show them the way. And so it builds their faith by trusting in another person who should be trusting in God. Difficult, hard, sounds unreasonable at times because I know myself, I know husbands, we can, we can be dumb, okay? We can be sinners. Guess what? We were born that way. Not an excuse, not liberty, not license, but it is the case. But then it goes on to say, husbands, uh, yes, you are to be submitting to God. You are to be trusting him to lead you so that you may lead your family And guess what? You're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And guess how Christ loved the church? Oh, well, he died for it. And so equally there, like asking men to lead, lead out of the example of Jesus, which may cost you everything, and it's asking wives to trust in this husband who is leading with an understanding that it may cost him everything. And he's to love like Jesus, assuming that both are believers. And we talked about the idea that on any given Sunday or any given day, the husband may be doing great, but the wife may not. Or the wife may be doing awesome, but the husband may be not. And so we give grace early, we give grace often. But the picture is this, that marriage should make the husband and the wife more and more like Jesus. And it should be a picture of Jesus himself. Different scenario here. But some of the same rules apply. And this is, this is where it gets tricky and hard. Because we can, you know, even if we kind of pull back, we can see Ephesians 5 and say, yeah, if the husband's doing that, I can trust him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if I'm doing that as the husband, I, I, can, I can ask my wife to follow. I'm good with that. Do I want to die for my wife? I, I hope I do, but, you know, it, it could come to that. Am I loving her like Jesus? Man, I'm, I'm seeking God for strength because I don't know how to do that. But then we come to this, and it gets tricky. So let's listen. It says, likewise... Hearkening back to what we just talked about, uh, people who are being oppressed by their government to a degree just because they're Christians, slaves who are serving good masters or bad masters, same idea here. It says, likewise, like that, wives, be subject to your own husbands. But here's the assumption here. This is probably um, kind of this idea of an unequally yoked marriage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14, written by, written by Paul to a group of believers, is telling them, he says, do not. Do not be unequally yoked to another individual. An unequally yoked partnership or a marriage would be like you've got two oxen. A yoke would be this this piece of wood that would go over two different ox, okay? And it would be designed to make sure that those ox were both going in the same direction, pulling the cart or the plow in the same direction. An unequally yoked partnership or marriage would be one of those oxen wanting to go east, one of those oxen wanting to go west, and that plow or that cart does not go anywhere. As a matter of fact, it can be torn apart. And so in, first Corinthians, in Second Corinthians, he's saying, do not, do not have one of these marriages. But in this case, in First Peter, the likely scenario was there was a couple, and they were Greek by nature, they were Gentiles as a result of not being believers, not being Jewish by descent, and they probably were Greek-worshipping people. And then the wife, most likely in this scenario, comes to know Jesus. 
And so it wasn't that they were disobeying Scripture, going after an unyoked or an unequally yoked partnership. It happened as a result of the gospel being made alive and well in the, the wife in this particular case, but not the husband. And now it gets tricky because Ephesians 5 makes a little bit of sense. But in this passage, it's saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word or have not followed the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. See, the whole point of this idea of being set apart, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about so that they may be one by our conduct. He wasn't telling people to be submissive to their masters as slaves because it was good for them. No, he was telling it because it was good for their masters, because their masters could see Jesus. He wasn't telling them to be good citizens of the place that they were politically because it was good for them. He was telling it because it was good for the people that were in power over them so that they may be won by your conduct. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are set apart for those who are not. Now, we're set apart for God's glory, absolutely. Like, we glorify God in the fact that we live separately, we live differently, we live sanctified. We are trying to be holy for He is holy. We are emulating the very heart of God, the character of God. It is being remade in us as a result of the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit that has been placed in us as a seal. But in this case, we have to understand that, man, marriage matters. Marriage matters. Now, if we write that down, we can put the emphasis on whatever syllable we want. It could be like marriage matters, like issues of marriage. But in this case, we're saying that marriage matters. This is a unique relationship that is not afforded to any other person. It should be unique between one man, one woman. We're not going to apologize for interpreting Scripture that way because it interprets itself. And it's unique among all other relationships that we'll ever experience. It's unique. And the same thing that holds true in Ephesians 5, even though the scenario is a little different, holds true here. That within the, man, within the beauty of marriage, one spouse or both can be shown Jesus by the other. We can be shown Jesus in such a way that it pushes us to walk closer to Jesus, to be more like Jesus. But in this case, it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, your own husbands, not other husbands, by the way, just yours, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2 goes a little further. It says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Abby and I were talking about this as we were driving home, this idea of respectful and pure conduct. I think it filters into two scenarios, two areas of life. Number one, it is how the wife responds and loves her husband, how she lives with her husband in which ways is she respectful and in which ways uh, is her conduct pure towards her husband it means she's faithful even when he's not tough word it means that that she's loving even when he's not tough word it means that even when he is a jerk she's not tough word it means that they do not repay evil for evil but they live peaceably tough word but then it goes outside of the marriage, too, to this, this pure conduct, and it's talking about all of the other areas of her life. So there must be consistency there, too. So not only what she does in the home with her husband, with their children, but how she goes and carries on her day-to-day -day life, 
husband sees that, sees Jesus in that. Consistency. Husbands, you're not off the hook, so just hang on. And so it says, wives, and be subject to your husband, willingly choose to allow them to lead. And the same thing with the governmental idea, as long as it does not compromise our ability to follow Jesus, that needs to be spoken there. It was subtext, it didn't need to be said, it was understood. As long as it doesn't compromise your ability to be obedient to Jesus, willingly choose to follow your husband. In doing so, he will see Jesus and God may redeem him. Being set apart is not about me, it's not about you, it's about the glory of God and so that others may see, know, taste, and have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Even terrible husbands. And man, I get, I get the turmoil in that idea. Because just like it's countercultural now to say if you're in a bad marriage, get out, it was countercultural for them too. Because they would have been hearing voices at all places, at all times, if you and your husband are not the same, because this was not just a, a Judeo-Christian idea, this was, this was a Greek idea too, that if you're not of the same accord, then you shouldn't be together. They would have heard that. But here, through Peter, Jesus is saying, no, but you're called to be different. You're called to be different. Don't think like the world. Think like Jesus. And Jesus came to die for those who were opposed to him. Be different. There was another issue at the time that Peter was going to address. Um, and Culturally, there are some ideas here that uh, we need to hit on, but there's also some things that transcend that culture, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, verse 3, it says, But do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. And so here, this is not Peter saying, you, you can't look good when you go out. Um, Man, now I'm not even going to say what my grandfather used to say. Um, and he was a good man, but different era. Um, he's not saying that. He's not saying that you can't care about what you look like, but he's saying, look, understand that what God looks at is not your hair. It's not the gold that you wear. It's, it's not your earrings, as dangly and as, as flashy as they may be, that you could use to catch fish. It's not that. I've often thought about that. Like, I think I've seen some, I, I fish a lot. I, I got to fish for smallmouth in Kentucky this week, which was awesome. And there are some earrings that I think I could put on the end of my fly line, and man, I could tear some trout up. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. That's just the rabbits that go around in my head. So, it's not about that. They were confronted day by day with art of the first century that was, if there was a woman in art, if she was painted or if she was sculpted, her hair was finely braided and things were interwoven in there, sparkly, shiny stuff. And she had on so much jewelry that she probably couldn't even stand up. I mean, that was the, that was the picture of the day of what beauty was. That was beauty. How much stuff you could fit on. How many accessories you had. Can you accessorize? How high are your heels? Maybe they didn't wear heels because, I don't know, I think that's one area that we've gone backwards in intelligence is heels. Ladies, I don't get it. Um, I don't get it. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, this is the problem with chasing rabbits. I get off track. So he's saying, but hey, here's the other issue. You have to be set apart in the way you think about beauty too. It's not about what you wear. It's not about those things. He said, no. He said, verse 4, but let your adorning or let what you consider to make you beautiful be the hidden person of the heart in the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So there's a lot of things that are done in the name of this passage that are wrong, okay, over the years. Number one, the first part of this text is taken as liberty and license for a husband to be a jerk, okay? That's not what this passage is saying. This is not giving husbands the excuse to be 
just jerks. There's no other way to say it, to be mean, to be cruel, cruel, to be domineering. Not what this passage is saying at all. As a matter of fact, we're going to get to it. It's the exact opposite of that. Um, but in this particular place, too, it's not saying that uh, you can't take care of the outside. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying that inside we have to be beautiful. He, he makes this, this statement. He says the beauty, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The other place that this has been taken wrong is to say that women are to not speak. Women are to be quiet. That's a lie, too. That's a big old lie. If my wife was quiet, I wouldn't be an eighth of the dude I am. If my wife did not speak, if my wife did not share wisdom with me, if my wife did not offer loving, gentle correction from time to time, I would be a mess. Gentle and quiet spirit here, this is what it's saying. It's saying that in the midst of chaos, a woman can have peace because she's trusting that God has her. A follower of Jesus, a woman that's bound to God through Jesus, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, she can have this gentle and quiet spirit. To not, it's not that she won't speak, but it's that she knows that she doesn't have to argue with God, even in the midst of turmoil. It means that the waters are still, even when everything outside's going nuts. The waters are still. Because she's trusting the, the God that calms the storms. She's trusting the God that smooths the seas. She's trusting that God in the midst of everything else, even in the midst of a marriage in which her husband does not believe what she believes. And she's trusting that God and God alone, through her conduct, can save him. A quiet, a quiet and peaceful spirit. He goes on, to say that this is precious, and he says, for this is how, he's going to hearken back, this is how the holy women uh, of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, doing the same thing that he just talked about. And then he brings up Sarah, which is interesting. He brings up Sarah to use her as an example of a woman with, like, the beautiful insides. But here's the crazy thing about Sarah. She was so beautiful that it was dangerous for Abraham. Like, if you go back and you read the stories, on, on two separate occasions, he brought Sarah in, his wife, uh, to, to like a village or a kingdom, and she was so beautiful, the king and the powers that be wanted her. And he was like, oh, she's not my wife, because Abraham didn't want to die. He's like, she's my sister. He lied twice. But she's the example of the inward beauty. Why? Because she had this, man, this gentle and quiet spirit, because she was trusting in God to lead her husband. Therefore, she could trust her husband. And ladies, I know that's a big ask. I get it. I didn't, I didn't write this. And I'm glad that I didn't because I would probably be passive and write it in a completely different sinful way. Saying this is beauty, that in the midst of everything unstable, you can trust God, and you do. So he uses Sarah as the example as Sarah obeyed Abraham, verse 6, calling him Lord. And that's not something we're asking you to do. It's not something Scripture's asking you to do. That was cultural at the time. It was, it was just a sign of respect, lowercase l, not capital L, none of those things. But just it was just an active sign to say, look, I'm trusting God that he's leading you, so therefore I'm going to follow you. I don't question why God says do these things. But I'm also a guy, and so I get the struggle. And so, ladies, like, I, I cannot fully grasp what you feel when you read this. But, men, I can tell you this. You need to hear the weight and the responsibility of it. 
you need to hear that God has asked women to trust you to lead, so therefore you should be leaning so hard into Jesus, yes, to know him more, to trust him more, to grow in him more, but because your wife is trusting that you're doing so. That should feel heavy, and rightfully so. It should be a, it should be a good burden a burden that grows us. One thing that we've learned over the past several years, one of the best ways to grow someone into leadership is by placing responsibility on them. Because sometimes they will never live up to their potential unless they have something that's holding them like accountable, like responsibility. Husbands, huge responsibility on our shoulders. Because yes, uh, we are trusting God so that we can know Him, and we're not trusting God so that He can save our wives, but we're trusting God so that we may lead our wives well, appropriately, caringly, lovingly, dutifully, if that's a word. I think it is. And then it says this. It says, and you are her children or you are like her if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I know how hard, yeah, whew, I know how hard it must be to hear. Wives, if you're in a marriage in which you are yoked to Jesus and your husband is not, to hold on to hold on. It's not up to you to save your husband. God does that, but he may very well do it through your life. The drawing that only he can do through his spirit may occur by him watching your life and seeing your heart. Not your responsibility to save, but it is our responsibility to be set apart so that people may see. And I love the fact that it says he may be one without a word just by your conduct. Now, here's the place that it transcends the culture of this day, really quickly, and I need, I need to move. Even though this was written to wives then, because it was the most likely scenario, um, because if we're going back and we're looking at citizens that, were, that could be oppressed by their government, slaves that could be oppressed by their masters, it was more likely that a wife would be oppressed by a terrible husband back then. It was, it was just, it was more likely, most likely. Um, but here's the scenario now. Anyone can come to Jesus, and there's a good chance that in a marriage, there's a husband believer, but, but the wife is not. Or there's a husband that's, that's seeking hard after Jesus, and the wife is just not. She's just, she's kind of pulled back. Guess what? The same responsibility rests on the husband. Now, you're not worried about braiding your hair and wearing jewelry, and if you are, that's, that's fine, but you know, that's probably not you. But here's the deal. By your conduct, God may very well save your spouse. God may very well use your heart and the way that you're living out your, your dedication to Jesus to draw your spouse, your wife, to himself. And so the responsibility rests on us. And so culturally, it was most likely to be a, a wife believer and a husband non-believer back then, but now, you know, it may be 60-40. <laughs> wife, husband, it, it, we don't know. Haven't seen that research. But either way, the responsibility is still the same. And you know what? I would even take it further to say, the marriage is the chief example, but I think it, it does go to all relationships too. While marriage is unique, and this is addressing marriage, like I think we should live our life in such a way that everyone should be able to see Jesus by our conduct. Everyone should be able to see Jesus by our conduct. Our coworkers, hopefully our neighbors if we know them well enough, our children, our parents, whatever relationships you have, they should all see. Now granted, within the marriage, they get to see a special picture because of the uniqueness of that, that relationship. Now let's tackle verse 7. Ladies, you can breathe. You might want to elbow your husband in just a second if you're beside them. Likewise, word comes up again. 
as a transition, it says, Likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. Hold on. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I know where our brains generally go in this passage. Our, our brains will generally jump to this weaker vessel idea. This is just about physicality. It's not about value. It's not about worth. It's none of those things. It's just about, you know, because men are just physically stronger than women. And I'm not trying to start a fight. It's just God made us differently for a reason. And so that's, it's just, that's all he's talking about. But here's the big thing. It says, likewise, uh, the same way that we're set apart, we need to be different for a purpose. It says, likewise, husbands put on us directly, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, I know that we hear this and we're like, well, that just sounds kind of passive. But here's the thing. If we are expected to lead our wives, if we're expected to love our wives, then the first thing that we need to do is we need to understand that there is no way we can lead our wife, there is no way that we can lead our family unless we lean into our wife. Our wives have been gifted with wisdom, they have been gifted with, with passions, they have been gifted with knowledge, uh, they are co-heirs with us of the same grace of life. We are partners in the same exact gospel, we are different because God made us different, but there's no way that we can lead our wives and love our wives unless we're seeking to understand our wives and hear all the goodness that is in them as a result of God making them for us and for His glory. There's no way. Like, my wife is gifted beyond. Like, most days I understand she's gifted beyond me. She is. That's just, that's just the nature of my wife. And I, I, I love her dearly. Do I? Man, anyway, sorry, Abby, I'm, I'm not trying to make you blush. But I have to understand that if I am seeking to love her and lead her, I need to listen to her. I need to learn her. I need to see where her wisdom is, her gifting is, her passions are. And we lead, and I lead in partnership. Now, Scripture is clear, like the husband leads, but the way the husband leads is we're depending on God, but we're also depending on our wives so that we get an informed opinion as to what God is telling us to do. Like there's no way that a husband should lead without asking his wife, hey, well, what do you think about this? I mean, if we want to lead well, we, we seek to understand our wife. And this also goes ahead and blows out of the water this idea of being a domineering, jerk, abusive husband, be it verbal, be it emotional, be it physical. You can't live with your wife in an understanding way if you're that either. So there's no way you can make the previous part of this text support that idea. If you do, we'd love to have coffee. We'd love to correct you. We'd love to talk to you. If you no, and I mean this in all seriousness. If you need help in that area as a husband, interpreting how you lead without being like that, we would. We would love to have a conversation. We want to talk with you through that. There's redemption there. There's help there. If you need counseling, we will point you in the right direction. We will triage and help you. But that's not how we lead. That's not how we love. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how he expects us to do it. And so if you feel rebuked there, be rebuked. But that does not happen. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. We can take this in two different ways. We can take it as an insult, or we can take it to understand this. Men, this is what we need to hear. We have been given both a responsibility and a prize. Hear me. Husbands, we have been given a responsibility and a prize. Our wives are precious. Our wives are precious, and when we see them, we should see them as such. And desire, don't be offended, but to take care of them. Do they need us to take care of them? No, but do we get to? 
yes. Like I, I grew up in the South, and I watched my dad open the door for my mom every single day. I've never seen him not open the car door for her and even buckle her up. And for one thing, that's one thing for my dad that I'm incredibly grateful. And does my, can my mom open a door? Absolutely. Can she buckle herself up? Absolutely. My mom, uh, she, can, she can shoot better than my dad. Uh, she can swing a hammer until she passes out. I mean, that's my mom. But my dad still loves her enough to know that she's a gift. He loves her. She's precious. And while she doesn't need those things, he wants to do them for her. And so he does. Am I telling you that you're living in disobedience if you're not opening the door for your wife? No, that's between you and your wife. But understand, our wives are a precious gift. Man, it says show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Look at her, value her, understand that she is a responsibility, not that, man, her life is in your hands and she's not capable. But we get to care for our wives. We get to love our wives, even at the expense of ourselves placing value on them even more than us. They're a gift. They're precious. They're priceless. And that's what God brings into marriage. It's unique, and it matters. Since they are heirs with you or co-heirs or partners with you uh, in the grace of life or the gospel, same spirit renewed them for the same purpose through the same Jesus, celebrating the same Father, pointing towards the same kingdom to come. Same co-heirs, partners. A lot of people don't like that word because we don't understand what partnership looks like. Here's the kicker. Huh. So that your prayers not be hindered, husbands. Guess what? If we're not doing this, there's a good chance that our prayers are hindered because we're in sin. It's the only thing that hinders prayers is sin. It's the only thing that roadblocks God from being able to hear from us is unconfessed, unrepented sin, and it does. It can quench the Holy Spirit as we hear from Scripture, keeps us from hearing from Him and Him hearing us, okay? If we're not living with our wives in an understanding way, if we're being overbearing, mean, rude, abusive, if we're not honoring them, if we're not seeking to understand them, I believe it's a sin of commission because we're omitting <laughs> and we're living in sin. Oh, man. We are called to be married differently. We're called to think of marriage differently. We're called to love differently. We are called to be utterly different so that People will see Jesus. And we've gotten to marry a lot of people over the years, and it's, I it's probably one of my favorite parts of, of being a pastor is getting to, man, getting to dunk and getting to marry and getting to do all of those things, see babies born. But, but one of the things that we try to stress to young couples before they get married is you need to understand that if our marriage is working the way God designed it to, your spouse will see Jesus in you, you will see Jesus in them, and the world will see Jesus in y'all. Marriage, it should be different, it should matter, and it should be a ministry. People should see Jesus in the way that we love and honor each other. Is it easy? Nope. But I don't think there's a whole lot that Jesus called us to that's easy. Faith without works is dead. You know, this idea if we believe that God's going to redeem our marriage, we have to work at it, by the way. 
We have to show what we believe by what we do. It takes work to understand our spouse. It takes work to trust our spouse, ladies. It takes work to lean into Jesus for him to lead us so that we can lead our family. But it's important because marriage matters, because the gospel matters, and people will see Jesus through the way that we love each other. If you're a husband and you struggle with this, I think the answer is simply, uh, man, we confess, we repent. Confess and repent. If you're a wife and you struggle with these ideas, same answer. Confess and repent. And then do this on both cases. Man, we ask for more grace and more strength. And if you need help, like if you're struggling through that, if you need help, man, we would love to sit and chat with you, um, help you in any way. We will point you towards qualified individuals that can help you on a deeper level, um, but we want to help. We want your marriage to be a ministry. We want your marriage to point both of you to Jesus and point others to Jesus at the same time. If you're thinking about being married and would like to know what this looks like, we'd love to talk, through, talk with you through that too. Um, let me pray, and then um, we're going to, to enter into a time of communion and a little more worship, um, and I'll, I'll guide us through that in just a second, but let's, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word, even difficult words that make us tense. God, we thank you that uh, we need that gentle and trusting spirit, all of us, to trust you with your plan and what you desire to do. God, thank you that you didn't call us from where we are to make us like we were but you called us from where we were to make us new, to make us different, to set us apart. And not just for our benefit, but for your glory. And so for also for all of those who do not know you, but they can see you. They can have a chance to respond to you by seeing our conduct. Such a weighty responsibility. God, I pray for the marriages that are represented within this faith family. God, I pray that they would seek to honor you, to know you, um, to show you in their marriages and to their spouses and that the world would see those, that marriage truly would be a ministry and an opportunity to reveal, reveal Jesus to others. God, I pray for husbands and wives. It's not an easy job to be married, but it's so good, and it matters. God, thank you for calling us to be more than we could be on our own. Thank you for calling us to be new so that we can abandon the old. God, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we have uh, prepared the, the parts of communion. They're back there. Gloves were worn. Uh, the bread has been placed in Ziploc bags so that each person can take one piece of bread. And there's a cup that's only been touched by one per person with gloves. And so you can take that. Uh, when you feel led, if you, if you feel led to take communion today, just go and grab it and bring it back to your seat. And then we're going to take it together. Um, but here's the deal. Here's our deal with communion. It's an open table. Anybody is free to go back there and take communion if a couple things are true. Number one, you're a committed follower of Jesus. So you have seen your sin, you've seen Jesus in stark contrast, and you've chosen him over your sin. You've repented, left your sin, chosen Jesus to make you right with God, and only Jesus. And, and you are following him faithfully. Uh, the other scenario, the other, the other consideration is if you have unconfessed sin in your life, like if we're looking at this text and you're like, I'm not that husband, I'm not that wife, if you need to deal with sin, deal with sin now. And if you feel like it's bigger than you can deal with today, if you truly can't say, God, I want to leave that behind, I want to repent of that, then it's okay. You can sit exactly where you are. There's no pressure for you to walk back there and take the bread and the juice. Uh, if you're at home, same deal. Um, hopefully the word was spread and you were able to get these things together. There is grace there, so if it's juice and glutinous, you can roll with that today. Um, I do believe in this time there, there's, there's grace here. Uh, probably wouldn't go bacon and cheese, but hey, you, you roll with what you got. Um, 
and then we're going to just bring it back and in between or, or when we see that most people have sat back down, we'll come back up and we'll take communion together. Uh, so let me pray. We remember the price that Jesus has paid through communion, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed on our behalf, and we also celebrate the fact that he's going to come back and make things just right. Um, so let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you've called us to be together and unified in belief and in direction. God, we thank you that that unity occurs because of one Savior who died one death for all people who may believe. Um, God, today we celebrate him. We celebrate Jesus in his, his birth, his life, his words, his death, his resurrection, to know that he did conquer death on our behalf. Thank you that we can remember him today, and we can look forward to the fact that he is coming again uh, to fix all that's broken for eternity. Um, God, I thank you for those watching. I thank you for those that are here. I pray to get it today that we will be together in this. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please try to, to give each other space. As